Good morning, everybody. How y'all doing? Hope you had a wonderful week. We're delighted that you're uh, worshiping with us this morning in Sanctuary. We're glad that we live in a city where there's all kinds of wonderful churches, but we're glad you're here and glad that you're helping us lift our voices to make Jesus more famous. Um, you know, when we think about the Word of God, this is our time where we celebrate the Word of God and talk about Scripture. And when you think about the Word of God and what it means and what it is, what do most people think of? The Bible. And we tend to, in Western civilization, particularly since the Gutenberg Press, most of us have access to these. Some of you have a bunch of them, at least access online. And it's something that is very accessible to us. It's hard for us to realize that the world, for at least 15, the first 1,500 years of Christianity, people did not have access to this book. I mean, the only time you ever heard it was when it was preached in a pulpit or at a church. You heard the liturgy being said, and you had access that way. But the book was always brought to us, the words of God were always brought to us, one on a bunch. It was a communal experience. And so when you heard it, you could discuss it afterwards, but nobody could go back by themselves and open the text and take it home. And even though we're thankful for that opportunity, and what it's wonderful on one sense for us to all have access to the scriptures, on another sense it's created some problems. Because instead of it being a message that comes one to a bunch, where we experience it communally, orally to our oral gate, where we thought about things communally and talked about it together, people can now take the book, go by themselves in their own privacy of their lives and read it and try to figure it all out. In one sense, they don't need to come to church anymore to hear it. And they don't need any instruction from any kind of, uh, uh, you know, um, accountable kind of sharing as we do things communally. It became very privatized. So in a sense, everyone with this book becomes their own church and everyone this book become, with this book becomes their own pope. Right? So that creates some problems. But the reality is, for us to understand, I'm going to make some comments that I am not trying to disparage Scripture because thank God for the Bible. Right? It is, it is our script. It is what gives us a sense of, of what God wants to do in our lives. Uh, Irenaeus in the second century said that it was, it, it, it was a record of the memoirs of the apostles. It gives us a sense of our regulara um, fide, which meant our, the, the very, very um, rule of faith. It's what we all live by, paints the lines for us to dance in. So it's a very important book. Yet, what you have to understand is, in Christian thought, when we talk about the word... Most people didn't think of a book. In fact, when they talked about the word, they talked, thought about something alive, something that was shared. We start out in John chapter 1. It says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Not something on print, on a paper, but something that was alive. It was God himself. And the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we saw his glory. When the word becomes flesh, there's glory, which means the word glory kind of means the idea of his actual presence was there. And the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace, full of truth. So the original idea of the word word was not something that came in a book. It was something that was alive. It was God himself. And God becomes flesh. Well, immediately people say, well, well, well how quick did he write the book? <laughs> The reality is, is that Christians, as I suggested, never had the book in their hands until after the Gutenberg Press, unless it came through the public experience of the church. And what we have to understand is Jesus didn't come really to write a book. In fact, he never wrote anything. He came 
to make a church. And the writing he did was on their hearts. He was the living word who, in communication with other people who were alive, spoke into their lives, and somehow their lives took on that word, and they became the living word. And then they would go out and talk to other people, and as they told them the word, they would become the living word. It was more like passing a cold, you know, where Jesus came in on people, people caught it, and then <laughs> the other people. And before you know it, this whole virus was going, called the church. Right? They wrote the book to capture what it was about. They wrote the book so we could understand what, the, what, what was actually going on to describe it, this moving of God's word in the lives of his people in, the, in, this, in this place called the church. Now, we see examples of this in 2 Corinthians 3. This is where the apostle is writing, and he says to them, you yourselves, you are our letter, written on hearts, known and read by everybody. You show that you are a letter from Christ. See, this is the book he's writing. It's not on paper, but it was a book that was the result of their ministry, written not with ink on paper, but by the Spirit of God, not on tablets of stone, but on the tablets of human hearts. This was the work of Jesus, the Word in the world, as he was transmitting the Word from his very life to the lives of other people, and they became living letters, living epistles in the world. That was what God dreamed. The early disciples understood how this worked. There's a famous story in Luke where Jesus had been raised from the dead. He's walking with the disciples, two of the disciples, and he's talking with them. Interestingly, the scripture says that Jesus prevented them from recognizing him, which begs the question, what if he does that to all of us? What if Jesus often is working in our lives, but he prevents us from recognizing him? Well, why would he do that? Well, the scripture says one of the first calls of the Christian is to seek the Lord, which implies he likes to hide. Right? He is the inventor of that game, the hide and seek deal. So he hides from them and they're questioning him. And it says, we pick up the narrative in verse 25, and he said to them, how foolish you are. <laughs> he rebukes them a little. How have you ever been rebuked in your faith? Yeah. <clears throat> How foolish you are, how slow of heart you are to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And they approached the village to which they were going. And Jesus acted like he was going to go further. Again, he's hiding. And they urged him strongly, no, stay with us for it's nearly evening. The day is almost over. So then he goes in to stay with them. And so he sits at the table with them. He took the bread. He gave thanks. He broke it and began to give it to them. Does that sound like anything that just recently happened? The Lord's Supper, the communion moment. And when he does that, it says all of a sudden that their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, deja vu, and he disappeared from their sight. How cool is that? That's like way cool, isn't it, don't you think? <clears throat> we get to believe this stuff. Um, interesting sidebar. This is one of the reasons the early church loved the Lord's Supper. Sometimes I bum out, because coming out of the evangelical, charismatic, Pentecostal tradition, sometimes... The Lord's Supper has been so paled, it's lost all its magic. Uh, for us, 
you know, the book has become kind of magical. And again, I'm not trying to diminish this, but you know, we use this to put our hands on to swear, so we tell the truth somehow, that's supposed to make us tell the truth. Uh, people do this kind of thing where they do verses, you know, <laughs> that somehow it's a magic book. But it was never intended to be a magic book, right? This is, this, this, this is God's thoughts to be sure, and we have access to them. But the magic is to be between us and the person of God, between us and each other. That there's magic there. And between us and moments like communion when we come in and we get messed with. And they love this. In fact, last week, um, uh, Brent and Janice were talking about that Acts text where it said that they gathered together all the time and they, they shared in the apostles' doctrine and they prayed together and they broke bread. They, they weren't just getting together for potlucks. That breaking of bread was literally the very early description of the Eucharist. Now, they used to make it a whole meal, and it, but it got a little messy by 1 Corinthians 11, which is very early. We're talking 55 to 65. I mean, it's very early, just a few years after Jesus had died and rose from the dead. And Paul says, you guys are getting this whole thing all messy. Some of you are bringing your, you know, some are eating filet mignon, others have peanut butter and jelly, and it's a mess. So just eat at home, but, he says, when you gather, still eat. But the night that I was, that, he says, the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he describes that whole communion moment. They, every time they gathered together, they would participate in the Lord's Supper. Why? Because they believed texts like this. That, that when Jesus came and he sat in front of them, he was completely opaque to them. They didn't understand who he was. But the moment he broke the bread, it says their eyes were opened and they, they, they recognized him. The early church believed that, they, that when we come to communion, we recognize Jesus in ways that no other place we recognize him. It's very important to the early church. And so he goes on. He disappears from their side and they ask each other, here's what I want to get to. Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scripture to us? Now all of us have these kind of stories where we're listening to, that have followed Christ for any length of time, you're listening to preaching or you're reading a scripture or something or you're hearing somebody talk about God and while they're talking, something starts going, <gasps> you start getting burned inside. Something, something other than what's being said is actually happening. You know what I'm talking about? You get mugged. God is a mugger, right? You remember Apostle Paul's going along, he got mugged on the road to Damascus. There are God muggings. All of us have mugging stories. Right? Where all of a sudden God arrests you because you have a bad attitude. He arrests you because you're not in forgiveness. He arrests you because you're living in an improper, improper way that's sinful. And God busts you. This is God messing with. This is, this is the word made flesh. This is what God's after. He's not just after you knowing a bunch of thoughts from a written book. He's after this written book being in the li alive in the human heart. <laughs> we... Uh, we, Gil and I, just went to, we were in New York City last week, and um, we went to a musical called The Newsies. Really cool musical. It was fun. It was uh, great dancing, great songs, great storyline. And uh, when I got back, I downloaded the, uh, the actual script and found it to be not nearly as entertaining uh, in fact, I brought a piece of it with us just to give you the experience of the script. Here's the background. It's 1899. The streets of New York City echo with the voices of the newsies peddling the newspapers of Joseph Pulitzer, William Randolph Hearst, and other giants of the newspaper world. On every street corner, you see them carrying the banner, bringing you the news for a penny a pape. That's what they called papers 
a penny a pape. Poor orphans and runaways, the Newsies were a ragged army without leader until one day when all that changed. Lights come up. We see the outside of the Newsboys lodging house. The main character, Jack, come on, boys, it's time to get out of here and sell some papes. We got work to do, random kid. Since when did you become me mother? Crutchy, who's the kid with a bum leg, hobbling on a crutch. Ah, oh, stop your bawling. All the Newsies together. Hey, who asked you? Crutchy. So how'd you sleep, Jack? Jack, on my back. Laughter. Ha, 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 ha. <laughs> Crutchy shuffles towards Jack with obvious difficulty. Jack, when I walk, does it look like I'm faking it? Jack, no. Who says you're faking it? Crutchy, I don't know. It's just there's so many fake crips out on the street today, and a real crip ain't got a chance. I got to find me a new selling spot where there ain't used to seeing me. Start song. <laughs> Can you see it? Is, is it gripping you? Yeah. It's the script. The play wouldn't be what it is without the script. But you know what? There are not very many people downloading the script. But there are thousands every week. We're in a packed room of thousands of people. We didn't pay $400 a ticket. Some, many of them did. We stayed in that line where you get the cheap tickets. <laughs> but thousands of people see that every week. They see the production why? Because productions are a lot better than scripts. The scripts are actually only worth the production of it. I mean, you can study the script if you're a person that does that kind of thing or you're a director or something. It becomes interesting to you. But most people aren't into scripts. They're into seeing productions. Jesus didn't come to leave us a script. Jesus gives us the script through the apostles and the teachers and the prophets of old so that we can see the script and that we can enter into the play. Enter into the songs, enter into the dance that we're supposed to do as a people. And it's when we actually perform the script that it captures the imagination of people. <laughs> so the performance we're supposed to be involved in, in are things like moving toward each other in community. We talked about this the last few weeks, but the reality is there's something in us that, you know, there's a longing in us to want to be connected to each other. But there's also a fear because we have been connected to people. And they've let us down. They've hurt us. They've slapped us across the face in some way. They've disappointed us. They've taken our stuff and haven't given it back. And, and after a while, what ends up happening is you can get to the place where you just want to just, just, just safer to be by yourself and not engage. And, and so sin we talked about is the great fragmenter. And we see in the very beginning when sin enters the human race, the first thing they do is hide and then they blame and then they run from each other. So here comes Jesus who forgives, takes away the sin of the world. And what the impulse of that is, if sin fragments, forgiveness brings us together. So the impulse is that we move toward one another. But moving toward one another still is a gnarly deal because you get slapped across the face. But Jesus said, the difference is, is that when you have God and he's coughed on you and you have this new life in you, this new kind of way and the word has become flesh in you and you are somehow a living letter, that you've been strengthened by this relationship with God and the relationship with people that love God and you can walk in and because you know God is a healer, when you're slapped across the face, you can turn the other cheek. And instead of responding out of your pain and instead of responding out of your unwholeness, you can respond out of wholeness 
and respond out of this place where you're strong because you're connected to God. So somebody takes your shirt, you can give them your coat. Why? Because you're supposed to be abused? No, because you know the provider. You can afford their abuse. And somehow as you enter in and you give and you love and you encounter and you listen and, and you engage with people you'd rather run from, in the midst of all of that, it's a song that people rubberneck over. And they look over to you and say, what's different about you? Somehow there's a glory to it. We read this in Jesus. He's, he's talking about this impulse to move toward one another. He says in John 13, he said, this is the new command I'm giving you. Love, love each other as I have loved you. So must you love each other. Why? By this people will know that you're my disciples if you love each other. He's saying, you'll make me famous in the lives of other people. You'll make the message that I herald important if you'll dance this, if you'll sing this way, if you act this way, if you perform the script. And then he tells them in John 17, he's basically saying, you don't have, we don't have to do life alone. Right? And he's praying for them uh, to the church. He's praying for the church. And he says to the Father, I have given them the glory you gave me that they may be one as we are one. He's talking about something supernatural here. Jesus' glory, the thing that made God's presence light on him and the thing that made him capture the crowds and the imaginations of people as he talked with them, that glory is that I've given them. Why? So that they could move toward one another, which means it ain't easy. It's hard to move toward each other. But he gives us his strength and his life. The way God's glorified the most in the world is not by you leaving, you know, four spiritual law tracks on the toilet thing. Dispenser. Now, there's, I mean, do it. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that because I think people, I mean, you cared enough to leave it. But that, that's, what really captures people's imagination is if you would dare to forgive them when they've offended you. When you would dare to move toward them when others would run from them. And you would dare to get slapped and turn to another place and be engaged with them even though you've been slapped. There's something very powerful, glorious about this kind of living. And he says, I and them, you and me, Father, may they be brought into complete unity. Why? So that the world will know that this is legit. That the world will know that the message I have, the message that is real, and that, that you've loved them even as, I, as you have loved me. See, this is what we engage in when we move toward each other in community. We're bringing glory to Jesus Christ. We're making the message of life irresistible. And this is what, it looks like love, it looks like caring about the other, it looks like listening, it looks like attending, it looks like engaging with one another, it looks like empathy. This is one of the reasons why, the central reason why we're doing this experiment over the next few weeks with these small groups. We just want to throw each other at each other and just see the mess. And just give everybody an opportunity to forgive and love each other and move toward each other. <laughs> and we'll see if we get any ghost stories from it, holy ghost stories. Something good happens when we move toward each other and we forgive each other. So this is very important. Something good happens in us. Something good happens from us or through us. You, you remember that one of the verses that we pray or the Lord's Prayer when we pray it. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. What's, what he's saying is something happens. The thing when you forgive someone, 
and you move towards someone and forgiving them, something gets messed with in your heart. Pride gets diminished. There's something that changes in you toward that person that makes you more open to receiving forgiveness from God. They're connected somehow. This brings good into the world. The reality now, what I want to shift to for the last few minutes I got, is I want to talk to you about the kind of love that's on steroids. It's called serving. And uh, we're called as believers, and Brent talked about this last week, to consider others as more important than ourselves. A hard sell. Would you agree? And in that moment of considering others as more important than themselves, it's setting us up for the notion of serving each other. Americans are big on personal freedom. We love texts like this in Galatians 5. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. We love it. I've got freedom. I've got my Bible. I'm going to go off. I'm going to be alone. I'm going to be free from you <laughs> or any responsibility. I come to church because I want to get what I can get because I deserve it. Freedom. And if I don't get it here, I'll go somewhere else where I can get it. Don't ask me to do anything. Right? <laughs> but then Paul ruins it because a few verses later he says, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge your selfishness, your flesh. Rather, <coughs> serve, serve, <laughs> serve one another humbly in love. God. There's just some verses that most people just don't want to read. This would be one of those. But Jesus, he demonstrates to us this idea of servanthood during the Last Supper. Most of you have seen this photo or this painting of uh, uh, da Vinci of the Last Supper. It's actually 15 feet wide and about 29 feet wide. The thing's huge. And um, he painted it by hand. It took him three years to do it. But he was a procrastinator, so it probably would have taken less. Um, but, but in this picture, what da Vinci, what's happening on the Lord's Supper, that wonderful institution, when he takes the body, bread, and he breaks, he said, this is my body, this is my blood. And he, he shares with them, there's something supernatural that happens in this moment. As he's preparing to do that, they gathered in the room, and according to Luke's gospel, when they came in the room to gather for the, this great supper, <laughs> they were all arguing. You know what they're arguing about? Who's the most important among them? Who will be the greatest among them? It's a well-worn argument, and they were all just kind of picking on each other, trying to be the best of the best, right? So then, right after that happens, Jesus drops this huge bomb. The bomb was, one of you is going to betray me. Now, what we're looking at here is this is da Vinci's uh, kind of view of what happened moments after he dropped that bomb. So we see the picture. This is them kind of in chaos, freaking out about it. So we have way over on the left, first guy over there is Bartholomew, and then you've got James the Less, they call him, he's, he's the son of Alphaeus, he's, the, uh, he's only mentioned three times in the Bible, we know very little about him, and then right next to him is Andrew, and Andrew's got his hands up like, what? Stop! Right, he's, what are you talking about? And then right next to him, we have this guy kind of looking up, see the black-haired guy kind of looking up a little in the distance, and he's got something in his hand. His name is Judas. What do you think's in his hand? A bag of money. 
So he either has the silver coins that he betrayed the Christ with, or he was the money bag keeper. So he's kind of there. Right next, on top of, you can see right to the right of him, that's with the long schnoz. That is Peter, and he's ready to leap on somebody. Right? He's freaking out. Then right to the right of him, you've got a very kind of a disturbing, uh, effeminate John. We don't know what Da Vinci was thinking. But there he is. Or there he is. Okay. And then to the, to the right of Jesus, the, the first guy you see is Peter. Or not, not Peter, sorry, it's Thomas. And he's, he's doubting Thomas. And he's kind of going, can I have some clarification? Kind of the idea there. <laughs> and then you have James the Greater, he's called. He's the son of Zebedee. He's the brother of effeminate John over there. And then to the right of him, uh, we have, um, it's Philip. And then to the right of him in the blue is Matthew. To, next to him is, is Thaddeus. And then next to him is Simon the Zealot. They look like they're kind of trying to get the Zealot to give him some information. This is what's going on here. So what's happening in this moment when they're actually, uh, uh, Jesus has just dropped this bomb. Look at Jesus. What's he doing? He's chilling. <laughs> He's peace in the middle of the storm. Right? So Jesus at this moment gets up. And what he does freaks them out. So much so that they leave this point of chaos and they all grow silent because of what he's doing. And we pick up the narrative in John 13, verse 1. It was just before the Passover feast, Jesus knew that his time had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now was going to show them the full extent of his love. This is the full extent of love. This is radical love. The evening meal was just being served. The devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray him. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. He knew who he was, that he had come from God, that he was returning to God. He wasn't just being a weasel here and thinking he was a nobody. He actually knew who he was. But he gets up from the meal. He takes off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he pours water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He comes to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, you're, you're going to wash my feet? Jesus said, you don't realize what I'm doing, but later you'll understand. No, Jesus, no. Uh, you will never wash my feet. Jesus said, unless you... Let me do this, I'll have, you'll have no part with me. See, the reason this was so radical, Jesus basically stands up, throws off his clothes, and, and, and wraps himself with a guy. He basically got down to the um, ancient uh, uh, equivalent of underwear. And he looks like a slave. And he picks up the basin, fills it with water, and starts washing their feet. Now, understand, this freaked them out because nobody washed your feet except pagan slaves. Not even Hebrew slaves would wash feet. It was beneath them. So here's Jesus going beneath his actual pedigree. And as he's washing their feet, they're freaking out so much. Peter goes, you're not washing my feet. No way, this is wrong. This is wrong, right? See, hard for us to understand. I mean, their feet were pretty cruddy because they'd walk around in those roads that were pretty cruddy. In fact, you may have come here in a vehicle that um, a mode of transportation that drives like crap. But their modes of transportation actually did crap. Horses, camels, donkeys, doo-doo. And they got all mixed up on the road where they're walking around and they're walking around in their doo-doo. 
And they came and they got their feet there. And nobody touches them feet. <laughs> right? But Jesus gets down. He kneels before them. And he begins to wash their feet. Saying to them, watch what it says. Peter says, no, 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 you're not going to do this. Jesus said, unless I do it, you, you'll have no part of me than, than Peter in Peter's fashion. Well, then not just my feet, my hands, my head as well. <clears throat> Jesus said, chill out, Pete. <laughs> a person who has a bath, you don't need to wash the feet. The whole body's clean. You're clean, though not every one of you. For he knew there was someone that was going to betray him. And that's why he said, not every one of you is clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes. He goes back to the place. The place is stone quiet. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher. You call me Lord. And rightly so, but that's what I am. He knew who he was. You, he says, now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. You should be willing to do things you would never do. You should be willing to do things that are beneath you. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done to you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent them. Now you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. You know the ancient word for bless in the Old Testament is a Hebrew word that means to bow. That means that every time God blesses you, he forgives you. He's literally bowing before you. The God of the universe. See, this humility is not born out of, you know, like some people say, well, I'm not worth anything. You know, in domestic abuse, sometimes women will say, I'm just, I deserve to be hit. Or, you know, the kids sometimes think they deserve to be mistreated. It's, and so they serve. That's not Christian servanthood. Christian servanthood is knowing who you are. He knew he had come from God. He knew he was going back to God. He knew he was the Lord of the universe, that he could stop the winds and the waves. He knew he could command angels. And yet he from that place of dignity, bows and gives himself. Every time God does anything in your life, he kneels before you and blesses you. And he says, what I want you to do is bless each other. Somehow, we're to go to others and we're to bless them, which means we're to go below them. There's a great word for submission. It's hupotasso in the Greek. It means to rank yourself under for the purpose of lifting. That when you go to your job, that you should rank yourself under and do your job as lifting them and honoring them as unto the Lord. That when you're forgiving someone, that you're to bow and say, I forgive you. You're, you're humbling yourself, doing what you shouldn't have to do. That's really below you. But you do it with a person of dignity, knowing that somehow in this place of servanthood, God is revealed. Is it suffering? Yes. Does it hurt? Yes. The point of suffering is not its pain, even though there's pain and suffering. The point of suffering is that you're demonstrating faithfulness when someone has been unfaithful. Every time God forgives us, don't you know we have grieved him? The scripture says we grieve the Holy Spirit, that we offend our God, and yet he in pain kneels before us. And offers us forgiveness. And there's something in us that goes, no, no. No, 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 you can't do that. And God says, if you don't let me do this, you have no part in me. You know why a lot of people don't love Jesus? Because we're throwing books at them. Scripts. We're not performing. We're not doing the song. We're not doing the dance. We're not doing the giving of our lives. 
for people. If we want people to, for Jesus to be famous in the world and for this city to be a real hard place to go to hell from, it's going to be because there are people who go on their jobs, who live their lives, who understood the notion of blessing the world and giving ourselves. One story, I'm done, but one story. There's a gal up in Wisconsin. Her name is Kathleen Hutchinson. And, she, and you didn't, she was a real quiet gal. I didn't know much about it. She's an RN. And I ran into a gal at church that had come to Christ and uh, in our church context. And I said, how did you end up coming here? I was sure because she thought I wanted to come hear me speak. It wasn't so. So I'm asking her. She said, well, actually, I know Kathleen. And I said, okay. She said, well, what caught my attention was she... We're, we're, she's an RN, both of them are RNs. And she said, we, we get to pick who we work with every month. And Kathleen kept picking the meanest head RN in the hospital. I assumed after months that it was because they were friends. She said, but when I worked with them, I saw she was just as mean. The head nurse was just as mean to Kathleen as she was to everybody else. Everybody hated her. Everybody hates her. But Kathleen kept picking her. And so I finally went to Kathleen. I said, Kathleen, why? Why do you, I mean, you get to pick. Why do you get all of us pick, pick, pick until we have to pick her? Why do you pick her every time? And Kathleen kind of smiled and she said, well, she said, I don't really get that much opportunity to work with hard people. And she said, she said, I do it because it's my opportunity to love and to give myself to someone who's difficult. And I just feel that God's honored by that. She goes, where do you go to church? She told him our church. And, and so what ended up happening is this gal came to Christ because somehow... And this gal giving herself and loving spoke to her. Listen, you make the gospel irresistible when you live the way Jesus taught us to live. Somehow the song is with That's why, when you, that's, what do you do when you come here? Are you just a consumer? Or do you come here and say, how can I serve? How can I suffer? You know, maybe for you, that's just coming to the five o'clock service. No, no, that wouldn't be suffering. The nine o'clock service, that, some of you, that would be just hell on earth for you. Maybe consider it because you're buying into the idea that we, this community is here to reach people and that most people normally come to this time service and that for you to suffer might make room for somebody else. There's an idea. See, why do we push away? Now, don't feel bad if this is the only church service you come to. You can come as much as you want. And we won't continue to berate you. I will hate you, but no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Brent and Janice, that's why they're here. They love people. <laughs> I, I have this joke I keep wanting to tell, but I'm not going to tell it because it's bad. Okay. Oh, wait till the sharps are on vacation or something. And, <laughs> and don't you tell. See, this is accountability for me. <laughs> Stand up, would you? Listen to me. Listen to me. How you live matters. How you live matters. Don't think that the script... You pushing stuff into people's minds and trying to fight for ideas with Bible verses that you're somehow representing Jesus. I mean, it's not that we can't use Bible verses and they're critical and they're the script we live by. But even if you're talking about scripture, they better pick up that you're talking because you love them and that you're submitting and bowing to them 
as you tell them truth. Don't think God just wants you to go into the world hitting people with a book. God wants you going into the world being the book. Loving, sacrificing, giving yourself, and suffering for his name's sake. Those who are godly and in Christ Jesus shall suffer. How much do you suffer? How much are you giving yourself to reach people? How much are you blessing them? Not again to have pain, but to show you're faithful even when people are not because you represent God. Amen. Before we go today, uh, if you need prayer for anything, as always, our prayer team will be over here at the cross. They would love to pray with you. Let's lift our voices together. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. As we go today, as always, we want to remind you of God's blessing for your life. May the Lord bless you. May you know that he kneels down before you in order to lift you up. May he keep you safe in his arms. May he make his beautiful face shine on you and bounce off into the world. May he be gracious to you. May we be a community that is guided by and transformed by his grace. May he turn his countenance towards you and give you peace, a peace that passes all of your understanding. May it guard your heart and guard your mind in Christ Jesus. Go in peace today.
I need your 